0: Every week, we do a Q&A with interesting and accomplished members of the adaptive community to find how they persevered, how they innovated, how they built communities, and how they found solutions. Welcome to the Name Tags Chat Podcast. Right, welcome to the Name Tags Chat Podcast. Today, we're with Josh George, who is one of, if not the greatest uh, U.S. wheelchair racer, One of the the greatest in history, really, on the track and on the road. Four-time Paralympian, five-time Paralympic medalist, six-time world champion. He's won the Chicago Marathon. He's won the London Marathon. He's won a world championship marathon. And he is joining us today from Smoking Jay's BBQ, which is a barbecue that he owns with his brother, in Poway, Poway, San Diego. So you're a little bit north and a little bit east of San Diego. A little bit. Yeah, inland.
1: just about a uh, 20 minutes northeast of uh, downtown San
0: Diego. Awesome. And you are yeah. now in the barbecue business. Did you ever expect <laughs> you're going to be in the barbecue business? How did that work?
1: Yeah. No. It was. It was a crazy. I never imagined that I'd be owning a restaurant. I never thought I'd be working in the culinary world. I am not exactly a cook, um, but my brother is, my brother is a phenomenal cook. Um, and he's a phenomenal business person. And he called me up uh, about four years ago, I was living in Australia, my brother calls me up, he's like, hey, dude, uh, I think I want to start my own uh, food business. Can you spot me some money for a smoker? And like, I didn't, I didn't know that he knew how to had a barbecue. I didn't know he knew how to smoke. But I knew that he was great in the kitchen. I thought, Ah, what the hell? Sure, man, I'll, So I I sent him I gave him uh about five thousand dollars paid for the first smoker for smoking Jays he gave me ownership in the company which I think was just his way of like hey I can't pay you back so here's some ownership in something that's worthless right now and uh, from there we we kind of he grew that business on his own for a couple of years before I moved from Australia to San Diego to help him grow the business but we took that in three years from a, uh, from a tiny little smoker and, and pop-up stand that was, you know, barely making $500 a week to a business that, a mobile business that had over 50 gigs a month. And uh, we used the revenue from the mobile business to build our first restaurant. So it's, it's taken some interesting turns in the, in the past few years. I never imagined I'd be here, but here we are, got a big old smoker behind me, a stack of wood.
0: And, but you grew up in Virginia, your brother obviously grew up in Virginia, but he went to school in St. Louis. So this is where he got the barbecue bug. Is that how it happened? Yeah, exactly.
1: Um, he, he went to school in St. Louis and St. Louis has some fantastic barbecue. And, and one of his best friends that he made at school loved barbecue as well. So the two of them would spend their weekends and their free time bouncing around St. Louis from St. Louis to Nashville to Memphis to Kansas City just eating at all the best barbecue places they could find. Uh, And he really, he he fell in love with it. He fell in love with uh, the process of how the meat was cooked and the cuisine itself. And uh, later, a few years after he graduated school, he started learning how to smoke at a restaurant in Virginia.
0: How is this barbecue business helping you prepare for Tokyo, which is Uh not 2020, but now 2021? Yeah, you know, it's, it's
1: not exactly the best combination, barbecue and, uh, and trying to be fast on a track. Um, the two things don't quite go hand in hand, but uh, it's, been, it's been fun. This has been the first time in my life where something besides racing has really taken a level of importance that is, that is uh, at least equal to racing. Um, so it's been a challenge for me to balance my training with running a business. Um, but it, it's been exciting and it's kept me level headed. Uh, I used to be one of those athletes where I would go out and train. I, I start my day every day training. I still do. Um, but I was one of those athletes where I would go out and train in the morning. And if I had a bad session, like that was it for my day. Like that was the sole focus of my day. And I had a bad session, it would kind of stay with me for the rest of the day and now I have a bad session and it's like well gotta forget about that I gotta get to the restaurant and deal with whatever fires are happening at the restaurant it just kind of helps with the distractions
0: so what are you planning on for Tokyo are you allowed to sort of prioritize I mean you have you're balancing these two things are you looking at reducing the events because you've usually run a lot of events at the Paralympics are you how are you preparing yeah, so we're doing we're doing a couple of things on the racing
1: side. I am I am reducing the events that I did when I when I started out when you and I first first met and we were first at the games. I was running everything from 100 meters to a marathon, um, and that's just unrealistic right now. Um, so I've I've dropped the sprint events. Uh, I'm really focusing on the 800, 1500, and 5K. Um, even the marathon, like I might throw my hat in the ring, but. You know, it's it's the last race of the meet um, of the competition, so I'm not really training for it per se. I might still jump in there and see how it goes, but my focus will really be on the the 800, the 800 as the main event, and then the 1500 and the 5K as well. Uh, And then with the business, my brother keeps getting on me every day. He's like, "Dude, you gotta you gotta hire more people." I I manage the front of house. He's like, "Man, you gotta hire more people from the front of house. So we could." take care of this when you're gone um but we've already started actually this week was the first week where i started pulling myself back from some of the day-to-day operations in the restaurant and and, uh keep it so most of the stuff i'm doing is like our our big big pictures type stuff our, our marketing type stuff stuff i could do from home uh to try to begin getting a little bit more recovery time from from my workouts and in preparation for competitions to begin like Next, uh, next month I'm going to Switzerland for two weeks, and it'll be the first time since the restaurant opened that I've been away for that period of time. Um, so that'll be something different uh, for for the restaurant and for me. I haven't raced, I haven't raced in in over over a year, maybe a year and a half. It's
0: insane how long it's been. What do you anticipate that will be like when you get on the track with other people who might well have been running with? know even training like you're missing out on what you had at the university of illinois where yeah training was a lot like a race you had a lot of the best guys in the world and now i'm assuming you're on your own
1: yeah yeah i'm not gonna lie i'm a little bit nervous like i i trained with a group for most of my career and when you're training with a group you, you you have a some level of confidence going into a race because you you get it's always a little bit easier to judge how other people are compared to the rest of the world than how you are compared to the rest of the world. But if I'm training with those guys, I'm like, all right, cool. This guy that I'm beating in training, he's, he's probably ranked at this level in the world and I'm beating him. So I'm at least this good. And now I'm, I'm coming in, I'm coming in completely blind. I, I haven't pushed with another wheelchair racer in over a year. I've been on the track with another wheelchair racer. So I am a little nervous, um, but I'm also excited. Like it'll be, I'm I'm kind of hoping it's it's like that riding a bicycle feeling where I, I get back in there and it just feels natural again.
0: You've done a lot of it. So there is a really good chance that it can be natural. I would imagine that the hardest part is just relaxing, it is not getting all jumpy and using all your energy to in, in a totally wasteful kind of way, right? That yeah. that's gonna be, the, I think the biggest challenge is sort of settle in and go, yeah, I'm cool. I'm cool, this is good and I, now I can go to my strategy.
1: Right, right, exactly. It'll be staying calm on the track and, and using that energy. And I also like, I actually anticipate with this, this trip, I'm gonna have maybe a little bit of excess energy because I won't be working at the same time. It'll be the first time where I can, I can kind of do my thing Uh, in preparation and and sleep and take naps and get to bed early and and not have to worry about you know 19 20 other people that are relying on me for work and um, and so that will be uh, hopefully that'll that'll give me some extra energy that I could then put forth on the track but we'll see it'll be interesting
0: what's the qualifying process for Tokyo do you have to run times in Switzerland, to yeah. be able to qualify for trials, which are in June. I mean, this is this is compressed like it's all happening right now, isn't it?
1: Yeah, it is, and it's a little bit ridiculous. Like I see, you know, you look on social media, and a lot of other countries are already doing their trials now um, and giving themselves a little bit more time. And I don't know which one's better because we're going from a year of not racing. At least I'll, I'll have a few races under my belt before trials. But that's that's exactly the process. So we have our t- time standards that are out. Um, that this year, in all honesty, are insanely fast times that we have to hit. Um, so I'm going to do my best to, to touch those times. Can you times describe what that
0: means, the, the, the time standards? That, what does that so mean? So time
1: standards. So the, there, there are different levels of, of – there are different times that athletes have to hit to qualify to do certain things. So the, the International Paralympic Committee, they have a time – set for every single event and every single classification in that event that basically they're saying if you do not run a race where you hit at least this time you're not allowed to race in the paralympic games it's a it's a minimum standard that you have to hit to race in the uh beyond that beyond that the united states has um their time standards that are they're basically saying in order to be considered for the team and for the drop-down ranking, you have to hit one of these two times. There's a B standard and an A standard. Uh, this year, those times are just insanely fast. I'm, I'm sort of on the, the, the downside of my career. And based on the time standards this year, like the, the 5K time, the 5,000 B standard, I've never hit in my life, even when I was at my fastest. The 1,500... The 1500 B standard, I've hit twice in my career when I was at my fastest. Even the 800 standard, I've hit maybe four times in my entire life. And so those are the standards now. So they're they're pretty insane.
0: What, what are the actual, so like for the 800, what's, what's the time standard that you have to hit? Uh, the B
1: standard this year, I think is a 136.4, something like that, around that. 136 mid.
0: Wow, so 1364. So one so so for, for the people who are listening, 800 is is a half a mile. It's two laps around the track. So 1364. what does that mean? That means that you're going like like 4848. 48. So 48 yeah. second lap 48 second lap in order to which which a 48 second 400 is a really competitive. 400 yeah in the world and then you've got to attack another another 48 on that
1: yeah it's wow. it's it's crazy i mean i remember i i do not hold the world record anymore but i set the world record in 2015 with a 130 34 and i think uh i've run a 133 since then the world records now i don't know what it is a high 131 or a low 132 um, and when that when that last record was set, I ran a 133. Um, but I haven't, yeah. But those are like we're talking crazy fast times. Back at the beginning of my career, when I first started racing, uh a a, a racer in my class, in our class, hadn't been below 140 yet. 140 was the world record. And we're it's just dropping like crazy.
0: Wow, that is amazing. And so just for perspective's sake, a 131, so 130 would mean that you're averaging 20 miles an hour, which is fairly, you know, kind of comprehensible when you're talking about from a rolling start, but from a standing start, having to go from zero, because as a wheelchair racer, it takes you a while to get up to speed. So to be able to average 20 miles an hour means that you're at 21, 22 the whole time in order to be able to run those kinds of times. And when you're coming into the turn at that speed, things get a little bit crazy. So, wow. So this is this is what you're looking for. Is it do you feel? do you feel optimistic or is it one that you can go in without expectations really and say, I'm going to go on muscle memory and hope for the best and just have fun.
1: That's, that's sort of the angle that I'm taking. Um, I mean, we all have to, we all have to go by these same standards. So, so for the U S you don't necessarily have to hit the A and the B to make the team at the end of the day, there's a drop ranking. And if you, you know, if you hit the A, um, the, A, the A standard is like 100% of your, quali- like it's 100% qualifies. Um, and then it goes down from there. So even if you miss the B slightly, um, you could be, you know, your whatever percent below what 100% is. Um, and then the, the U.S. based on the results of all of their athletes will go down that drop list and say, we, we have 50 slots or 40 slots or whatever it is. So we're going to take the top 40 people in there. And it might not necessarily mean that all 40 of those guys have hit the A and the B standard. Um, Your odds are significantly better of making the team. If you have hit at least the B standard. So, you know, I'm going into this year and and into Switzerland next month, just kind of, kind of optimistic, um, but kind of like, all right, I, I've done it before, my arms know what they're doing my body knows what it's doing. hopefully it'll get back into the groove quick enough uh, where I could take advantage of, of some of the some of the, the top racers being there. maybe I could find a wheel, find a draft and and uh, get some help getting around to, to some of these fast times.
0: And that's also the track in Switzerland is one of the fastest tracks in the world too so
1: yeah, we will be doing two meets in Arbonne, Switzerland, and Arbon is home of uh, still the fastest track on the planet for wheelchair racing. So if there's, if there's anywhere it's going to happen, it's going to happen there.
0: So you're doing it right, and hopefully you're fit enough that you can get into the draft and stay in the draft and maybe see what happens once, once you're there.
1: That is exactly my strategy. Just kind of hang on, hang on until the finish line comes
0: this is going to be interesting because it, it'll be interesting to see how it all plays out as well, because people haven't had a chance to race, right? Who knows what the fitness level is because there's the training component, but then there's also the racing component where you race yourself into shape. And if these standards are difficult, it might mean that you're not getting a semifinal. You're not getting a quarter final at the Paralympics in some of these events. It might have to go, straight to final because there aren't that many people who can hit the standard. Is that a realistic word? Yeah.
1: I, I, for, for the events that I'm in, I don't think they'll, uh, they'll do away with semifinals. Um, but the Paralympics recently, they've already been doing away with quarterfinals. I haven't, I haven't raced a quarterfinal in, in forever, um, which is truly a shame. Uh, that's probably a topic for, for another conversation, how the IPC is handling their business. But, uh, Um, but yeah, I, I think we should still have at least semifinals and finals for all the events that I'm doing. Um, which, which is nice. I can't imagine racing a straight to final at the Paralympic games. Like that's just so much pressure.
0: It would be so much pressure. I mean, certainly the 1500 and the 5k, which are, which are two marquee events. And this is a combined class, right? Because you have the T53, which is what you are a, a, um, uh, you know, a higher level paraplegic, and then the lower level would be in the T fifty four, the guys who are the amputees, and some of the walking paras, and some of these kinds of things where they have full stomach and full back. The guys who can sit on the track and then sit up and then lie back down, where you are pasted to your pasted to your knees. That's really my chest hard. is on my knees. It's stuck there. <laughs> That's exactly it. But you've been so successful in. In being a T53, who can who can compete? I mean, I watched earlier today the 2015 London Marathon, where you outsprinted David Weir. And and for those of us who were in London in 2012, I mean, David Weir was invincible in London 2012. I mean, at 400 meters, he decided he wanted to go. And and it really didn't matter what anybody else decided because he was going to be the first one to the line. But you out sprinted him in the final the final bit in London. Has that always been a goal for you to to be able to to compete with the fastest wheelchair racers? Yeah, yeah. From
1: the from the very beginning, uh, and it actually was that right there was the the crux of of how i became a professional wheelchair wheelchair racer why i was in wheelchair racing um to begin with like i went when when i was when i was younger uh basketball was always my top sport um even through college like i went to i went to the university of illinois on a basketball scholarship like i knew they had a wheelchair racing team and i was excited that i would get to race as well but i was there to play basketball um and i even i made the the national team the men's national team uh in 2005 um just a a year after my first paralympic teams i made the team in in basketball and i thought all right cool like racing was fun i raced in athens and you know maybe i'll be a basketball player but really what what pushed me back into racing was that desire to be one of the best guys and be able to compete to be the best in the sport and i knew in basketball based on my disability level and the the nature of the sport someone that's that has as high an injury level as me no matter how hard i trained how skilled i was how good i was how fast i was i was never going to be a better basketball player than say pat anderson uh, from canada who's a double amputee probably one of the best if not the best wheelchair basketball player to ever live, like he's a phenomenal basketball player, but you know he's got more skill than me for sure. But even if all things were equal, um, his is just what he's able to do functionally is it's impossible for me to do. But then I looked at wheelchair racing and I looked at you know one of my early heroes in the sport and Heinz Fry, and I saw this this Swiss racer and Heinz's injury level is even a couple vertebrae higher than my own. And he was, he had the world record in the marathon and he was beating amputees and beating these guys with way more function than him. And I, I saw, oh shoot, like wheelchair racing is a sport where if I really throw everything I have into it, I could compete to be the best. And that was always a goal. I always, always a goal. And when I that that day in London was like that that was the pinnacle of the sport for me because that was years and years and years of of hard work and and of you know oftentimes being the only one uh in my head or in my circle like really thinking like yeah I could I I could beat these guys like and it seemed unrealistic because the function level of some of those racers is so much more than what I have and I just like I kept you know, even sometimes I would admit it, I was trying to fool myself into believing this thing that may not have been possible. Um, and at least a couple of times in my career, I've been able to win win some big marathons against some some top, top racers. Um, you know, I won Chicago in a sprint finish with Ernst, Ernst Van Dyke and Kurt Fernley. Um, I won the London Marathon in a sprint finish with David Weir. And, and like, those are the times in my career that I really hold as, as the pinnacles of my career, because I was, I was able to be on that day. At that time, I was able to be the best, um, you know, it never seemed to last for long. There was always the next race, but at that point in time and that day, I was able to be the best.
0: Right. And that's really all you can hope for. I mean, that's the hard part as an athlete. It's not, you're not going to go race after race, after race and be undefeated, but, but at some point you're going to, you know, if if you can win and beat those guys and say, I did beat those guys. There are certain, certain elements. What did you have to do in order to be successful against those guys? What did you have to figure out as far as a strategy to minimize their strengths and maximize yours? I had to look at what,
1: what my strengths were, what I was capable of doing. So for the marathon, like I knew, My my injury level and my function level, it affected my top speed compared to the rest of the world, but it did not affect my endurance compared to the rest of the world. So if I could train my train my my body in such a way where I had the endurance to push different parts of the race and keep the pace high and challenge on all of the hills every single time, I might be able to get to a point where at the end of the race. The guys I'm racing are tired enough where all of a sudden their top speed is down to my level. And that would give me the opportunity to win. And that's like, that, that race in London against David, that is exactly what I did. I was, the, the 26 miles prior to that last sprint, I was throwing in as many surges as I possibly could. Anytime I saw the, the pack kind of getting comfortable and settling in and people trying to rest, I threw a surgeon and I picked the pace up and I made people work and I made them chase me so that by the time we got to the end, I was, you know, I was just hoping that, um, just hoping that they would be tired and that they would, I would take a little bit out of Dave's final kick. And I, I was able to take just enough out of his final kick to, to make it work. Uh, but that's the key. If we had raced a 400 meter race that day, Oh, Dave would have beaten me 10 times out of 10 but it's a marathon, not a 400. So there's, there's some things you can do.
0: Was he surprised when you, when you took it out of him in that last sprint?
1: I think so. Yeah, um, for sure. Uh, earlier in that race, I think in the first half of that race, Marcel, Hoog, uh, who was the, I think it was at the start of the race. Any, any expert would have told you it's between David Weir and Marcel Hoog for the win. And Marcel flatted his front tire in the first half of the race. And the whole pack saw him pull off to the side and fall back. And he didn't even end up finishing that race. And I think from that point on, I think Dave kind of got comfortable. And he looked at the pack around him and he didn't, I don't, I don't think he was expecting anyone in that pack that was left to be able to challenge him at the end. So I, I, uh, I had a little bit of the element of surprise on him
0: which is one of those things that you hope for right don't take me seriously and you'll give me a huge advantage
1: right yeah exactly exactly um and 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 it worked i i, I really think you know when he saw me pulling up next to him i, I probably got a, a half a stroke advantage on him just because of that sh- that surprise level at the end
0: Of like what's this guy doing here this is yeah <laughs> who is this dude what's he what's he doing exactly go go get back behind me so what's uh (laughs) wheelchair racing is is weird right i mean you were talking about that you used to race 100 meters through through the marathon that doesn't happen in running i remember at one point one event i sat next to carl lewis and and this is after well after he had retired and i said well what do you what do you do now and he looked at me he said you know what i don't go for a run he said i'm a sprinter i'm not a runner I'm not going out for a jog, but as a wheelchair racer, you can be successful from a hundred meters up through the marathon. What do you value one more than, uh, more than another? Do you look at it because it's also on the road is where you can make a living. Right. Well, the road, I mean, that, that right
1: there was, was really, I think what pushed the road ahead in my mind, because I, I wanted to be a professional athlete. I wanted to try to make some money, uh, racing and you can't, at least in the U S you can't make any money being a hundred meter sprinter. You got to do the marathon. You got to do the half marathons, the 10 Ks, you got to get on the road. Um, and so, you know, that was a big part of it. I'm naturally, when I started racing, I was naturally a a sprinter, naturally more of a middle distance guy, like the 200, 400, 800, Um, I was never the quickest off the line, even when I won, I won the hundred in Beijing, which is still the weirdest thing to me to think about because I was never good off the line. And I was in like sixth place at the 50 meter mark in that race or something. When I look back at it and I just, I had the, probably the best acceleration of my entire life to finish that race. Um, but, uh, the other, the other thing that motivated me to go into the longer races was in wheelchair racing, the the shorter races you're divided based on your classification. So anything shorter than a 1500, you're racing the 53s in one category, and the 54s in another category. Um, and so, like as a 53, you could win a race and still look at the the, uh, the sheet list at the or the the finishing standings at the end of the race and there are a bunch of guys that ran faster than you because you ran your race in your division, but the 54s, you know, maybe a few of them ran faster than you did still. And that's, I think also what appealed to me back to that conversation or the, what we were talking about earlier in the conversation where, you know, wheelchair racing, you have for someone with a higher level disability, you have the, the chance to, to be the best and to win against everybody. And on the road, um, it was an open class race and you had that chance. And that was, you know, I was, I was a cocky kid who set these goals. And then I was a pig headed and stubborn young adult who wanted to live out those goals. And so that's what, that's what it came down to.
0: You said Heinz was, was a hero of yours and you wanted to follow in his footsteps. Did you really think that that looked like fun though? I mean, like one of the things that Heinz was, uh-huh. That Heinz was famous for was like putting together like 300 strokes at a time, and wheelchair racing is ballistic, right? I mean, this is this is anaerobic for the most part, and yeah. he was just he turned himself into a fan, right? And it just click 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 300 strokes, where a lot of guys are going, you know, like a Jeff Adams or one of these guys is doing one two three strokes kind of thing, versus Heinz who's going 300 strokes. Yeah, and and you looked at that and said, okay. I see how he's doing it. That's, that sounds like a good idea. Well, Chris, I never said I was an intelligent person. I just, (laughs) (laughs) I just saw
1: that he could do it. I was like, yeah, I want to do that. And then once you start putting in the work and realizing what it takes, then you, you know, yeah, it's, it's a lot of work and you gotta, you gotta beat yourself up. And um, I think really what allowed me to do it was, was the environment that I was in. I spent, I spent most of my career training at the University of Illinois, um, originally with uh, with Marty Morse, who was one of the best coaches in the world through the through the entirety of the '90s, uh, and then under his protege Adam Blakeney, who is currently one of the top coaches in the world. And like these guys, they know what they're doing, and they're very good at putting together uh, productive and fun training environments like you're working hard you're working your ass off but you're actually enjoying it and and based on their personality and the athletes that that are drawn to working with them you're with a a lot of like-minded individuals uh, who are putting in the work next to you and with you and around you and that definitely helps i was i was far from alone when i was putting in all those punishing miles um trying to get to that point where i could i could you know, out endure people in a marathon, I wasn't doing it alone. Um, and I don't, I, it's, a, it would have been impossible to do it alone. I never would have been able to, if I was training by myself, I, I never would have been able to do it.
0: What was that satisfaction like when you finally did it too? Because the thing is, okay, you're a cocky kid and you say, this is what I'm going to do. And then you're pig headed but then you yeah. actually, you actually do it. And a lot of most people, would tell you that you were crazy that, that Heinz fry was a complete anomaly. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, I mean elation for sure like I, you're feeling elation but once you once you see that you could do something, once, it, once you prove to yourself that you could do something it's, it's not quite as hard anymore um like it was hard telling myself that I was able to do this without any example other than Heinz without any evidence other than Heinz um but once I was able to do it I was like oh shoot okay like maybe I can maybe I can do this again like maybe maybe it wasn't so far-fetched to believe this um and you just kind of get hooked on that that feeling and you want to you want to try to do it again I remember the first that that uh when I won the Chicago marathon, I, I don't remember what year it was, maybe, uh, 2012, maybe 2013. Uh, when I had a, I had a sprint finish with Ernst and, and, Kurt. Um, and I had been training with Kurt in Australia every winter and I would go out there and I would get my butt kicked by him session after session, after session, just chasing him down. And we had, he had this, this one course with these monster climbs. So you're like climbing up a cliff. And he's one of the fastest climbers to ever live. And I remember just being demoralized about how far behind him I was. But every day I would get maybe a little bit closer and a little bit closer. And then in that Chicago marathon, when I beat him, um, I I called my mom and I was like, hey, guess what? I won the race this morning. And she couldn't even help herself. The first thing out of her mouth was, I never thought you were going to do that. And it was just, (laughs) and like, I don't, I don't blame her, but it was just like, I, I, that was, that was how sort of like based on the, you know, the training process to get to that point, I you couldn't blame her for believing that. Um, and, but then after you do it though, it just brings your confidence to that other level. When you prove to yourself what you can actually do, it, it makes it a little bit easier and more motivating to get there again and again. Um, and that, that's really that was a that race right there. That Chicago was really the turning point in my career. I went from there, and I I managed to to win a handful of big races um, and set a couple more world records before I was a, derailed a little bit by injury. But yeah,
0: and and the thing is, you you empowered some other people as well. So I look at like a Brent Lakatos, you know, who who won the London Marathon, who's a T fifty three as well from Canada, who started out yep. as a sprinter. You know, 100, 200, 400 won the London Marathon this, this past winter. And yeah. I would imagine that, that certainly Heinz is always going to be the grandfather of, of that, you know, of that experience. But, but I would imagine that you have to take a little bit of ownership as well and go, you know, I think I helped him believe that he could, that he could do it, that he could transform himself as well.
1: I think so. And I hope so. Like I, I really, when I was for most of my career, when I was racing these marathons and, and trying to, to race, um, these open races in the, in the Paralympics, the 15, the 5k in the Paralympics, there were no other 53s that were in there. Hines was sort of at the end of his track career. He wasn't trying to do it on the, on the track in those open races anymore. And And he wasn't winning, he wasn't really winning any of the big marathons anymore either. Um, And there were no other 53s besides myself that was, were trying to pick up that torch and and carry it and try to show that, hey, you know, you don't have to be an amputee to win these races. Um, And, and I think so. I remember uh, after I, after I won Chicago, and then again, after I won London, uh, when I would go to a track meet every other athlete in my 400 or 800 when I was with all the 53s they would come up to me and they would congratulate me on that race and they would like sort of like hit me in the shoulder and be like yeah you took them down like it just like you could tell there was sort of this communal feeling like yes one of us beat one of them you know like we took down those guys with more function and uh you could kind of feel that energy off of them and I I remember um Pierre Fairbank uh, who I believe you raced against Pierre as well, but yeah. a, a wonderful French racer. He, he's spent most of his career training in New Caledonia, but a, an amazing racer in his own right. He started doing marathons towards the end of his career and he ended up in, in uh, one sprint finish. I think he ended up finishing fourth or fifth in that race and it was his best finish, but he, he came up to me after that race. And he was like, you know what I was thinking at the end of that race, I was thinking, Oh, Josh George, he could do it. I could do it too. and, and that's so it was just funny like he, he took he took motivation from what i was able to do and tried to you know use that to, to help his own finish Well,
0: you've talked about as well that that sport can be a platform for to create social change what does that mean to you and what have you been able to do in your career uh, i feel like sport is
1: sport unifies people uh and it does in the in the able body world and and in the world of disability um i mean in the able body world people's they forget about their political differences or their racial differences or socioeconomic differences when they come together to cheer for their favorite team or when they come together and on the playground to play a game of basketball it doesn't you know at that point it doesn't matter what color your skin is it doesn't matter how much money you're making it matters can you shoot can you pass? Are you a good player? Like that's what matters. Um, and then, in uh, in the world of disability, I've always been a proponent for using sport to sort of connect the able-bodied world more with um, what it's like to have a physical disability. Um, there's there is still a lot of stigma around disability, and that that shows itself in um, in social aspects, in, jo- in the job market, in, in education. I mean, the statistics for the amount of people with physici- physical disabilities that graduate high school, let alone graduate college are still pretty pathetic. Um, and then, you know, the, the job market the people with, uh, the, the, the rate of people with physical disabilities that have well-paying, steady jobs, it's, it's embarrassingly low um and i feel like sport can be a connection i've always advocated i've always advocated for adaptive sports to treat the equipment that we're using like equipment to take the stigma disability out of it to invite able-bodied able-bodied athletes and able-bodied people to come and play our sports come sit down in a wheelchair and play basketball with me get in a racing chair and and race with me hop in a Hop in a mono ski, hop in, uh, in a sit ski and do some Nordic skiing, like come in and, and sit down in our equipment, get on the same level as we are and let's, let's do something together so we can relate at a level that has nothing to do with disability, has nothing to do with me having to look like this to have a conversation with you. You know, like, let's, let's get on the same level and do something together. I've always been a huge advocate of that. And I push for that and some writing that I've done and some programs I've worked with Uh, my brother uh, who I'm working with now for a period of time, he was actually training in a racing wheelchair and we were trying to get him in the, in the New York city marathon. And I'm still like, that is my favorite race in the world. I love the people that organize the race, but they didn't let him race. And that was the one That was the one thing i was like come on guys like you gotta see your rules for your rules for who's allowed to race in the wheelchair division like we gotta we gotta fix that like there should be there's no reason why you should have a rule that says you must have a permanent disability to race in the wheelchair division of a road race of a 10k or a 5k or a marathon like if you're if you're willing to sit in a racing chair and put in the work and the training and the effort to do that race, you should be allowed to race. And, and my brother trained his ass off for a year. We were trying to get him in that race. And he was actually getting pretty fast and, and getting pretty strong. And um, he dealt with, with developing like the little spider veins on his shins from being jammed up in that chair. And, but he did it and he was able to do it. And, and we still talk about that. We still talk about training together. This is, this is him right now.
0: spider veins in my thighs from uh, the circulation being cut off. It's funny that you say that because I did, I did a, I think it was a five mile race in Boston one time and a guy who wrote for Runner's World wanted to do an experiential article. So he went out and he trained and he got into a racing chair and, and it's just, it's kind of funny. Your brother's talking about what happens to his legs. Like this guy did it and he was not, he was not fast. You know, he trained a little right. bit, but he hadn't trained all that much. He was sitting the way that we sit. So we're effectively like in a yogi position where your legs right. are folded underneath you. It, it can't be comfortable. Like if you can feel it, it really can't be comfortable. And he finished and he couldn't stand up. Right. because his legs had gone, had gone numb, you know, they'd gone to sleep. But, it, but it's, I think you make a really good point. And in Boston, uh, Kelly Smith's brother, Kelly Smith, with whom we raced in, in Canada, yeah. his brother, Kevin, and his, and his roommate, Jen, had both raced. And not only had they raced, like Boston's a race, you have to qualify to race in Boston. And, and his roommate, Jen, she actually had qualified as a runner and then qualified as a wheelchair athlete, and you—that's cool. I would think like you got to celebrate that, like that's cool. Yeah, into the sport, and it's a way to connect. And the equipment is a great way to connect. Where it's not, hey, this is an assistive device. It's like, right? Oh, this is cool. This, this is, is cool. This, this is cool. Cool. This it's sport. It's sports
1: equipment. Yeah, it's the same as a hockey stick or a baseball bat or you know whatever piece of equipment you need to use for your sport. That's all it is. And I think like for, for, the, the disability, for people with disabilities, it's even more so because um, in, in the US especially, a wheelchair is seen as a medical device. And that's, that's not what it is, it's a tool, it is equipment. And so if you can start at a level where it looks cool and it, it is a technologically advanced and cool piece of equipment like a basketball chair or a racing chair or a hand cycle Start there. Let's start the conversation there and, and all come to agreement that that's a piece of equipment. Then we can just go from there to the fact that the, you know, the chair I'm sitting in right now is just a piece of equipment.
0: And it really is because like for you and I, we don't have, we don't encounter much of anything on a daily basis that we can't do. Right. I mean, I mean there are things that'll come up that you're like, oh, okay, all right. That's gonna be a challenge or whatever. But like on a daily basis, most days you do what you're going to do. You don't wake up in the morning. Like when I first had my accident and I was first in college, I remember mapping my route when I had to go somewhere thinking, okay, can I go this way? I don't know if I'll be able to get up that hill or there's a stairs there, but that doesn't happen now. Like now we have a good sense of what we're doing. I think we've gained a sense of perspective You know, just the perspective of having gone through that trauma, having had to adapt, which is a very similar perspective that you gain being an athlete. But then you, your sense is that, yeah, we're really, we're really not all that. We're not any different now. Our challenges are the same challenges that everybody else is going to have. They're not any different. And how do we, how do we demonstrate that how do how do we affect that change
1: yeah and in, in a way that's really gonna stick like like you and you you know probably better than i do you you go and, and do a motivational talk somewhere you, you speak into a room filled with hundreds of uh, able-bodied people and for that moment and that hour and maybe that day they're gonna they're gonna understand okay cool yeah this is you're right like it's all you get, it, we're humans and we adapt to the situation we're in. And, you know, then it doesn't feel like a hindrance anymore. After that point you've adapted, but what do we do to get that message to, to stick for the rest of their lives? What do we get that message? How do we get that message for, for them to then pass that message on to their children or to their friends or, you know, and, and, and that's, that's the, the challenge. And that's, that to bring it right back to, to athletics. I feel like Having those opportunities available—that's that's what helps. That,
0: and part of it, I would imagine, is now the Paralympics are on television. Yeah,
1: which so, is so huge. Been,
0: it really is, and this year it's going to be prime time. So, so it's not necessarily somebody just TiVoing the the Paralympic games so that they can watch it. You know, so that they don't have to watch it four o'clock in the morning or whatever. Because, right, London change that London. And so we've been talking about your London marathon in 2015, but London 2012 changed the landscape in terms of, in terms of media coverage throughout the world for the Paralympics you've written about. And, and I, I should have mentioned this in your, in your introduction, because you also blogged for the New York times. I mean, you're not, you're not just a barbecue guy. You've done a (laughs) lot of other things. What did what did London 2012 mean in terms of the Paralympic movement, but also in terms of the movement for people with disabilities, which is a group of which we are a part? Well, London was huge because, I mean, the world of
1: of sport and professional sport is driven by markets. It's a business. And London was the first time that they were able to prove like, hey, These athletes with disabilities, they're marketable and they can make money and they can put butts in seats at stadiums. Like they were were selling out stadiums and they weren't just giving away tickets for free. Like I know I raced in front of sold out stadiums in Beijing, but later you hear half the tickets in that stadium were given away for free. People weren't paying for them. Um, So that's different. But in London, people paid for every single one of those tickets and sold out a stadium. Uh, their, their TV coverage was amazing to the extent that they had advertisers come in late, like begging, offering to pay up, above market value to get ad space during the Paralympic Games because it was so popular. And that's the thing that I think really blew the top off of everything was finally the world saw like, look, these, these sports are entertaining and they're entertaining to the extent that people will pay money. To see them being being put on, to be to see them being competed in. And, and that's, I mean, that in art, in like money, money drives things and business drives things. And, and the fact that London's marketing team did such a good job educating the people in, in England, in, in the UK, about the Paralympic Games, so that there was a basic level of understanding about the classification and the different events and, and understanding to the point where they got excited about seeing it and we're having conversations about it. And it was the first time in my life, like we we're you would walk through the, through the streets in London and someone would stop you and be like, I was at the pub the other night and I watched you race. And it's like blown away. Like, you're kidding me, right? That's insane, that's amazing. And people were making it a part of their day to, to go to the pub at the end of the night to watch the Paralympics. Or to you know spend some money on a ticket to go in there, or to buy the merchandise, um, and it it really changed the nature of the game. And then the fact that that you know you you mentioned it before, David Weir was untouchable in those games. And as a competitor of days during those games, it wasn't the most fun. But as a wheelchair racer afterwards, that was probably the best thing that could have happened because he really he really touched on the imaginations of everybody in the united kingdom about how incredible these athletes are and what he did there just really set off what level of talent and athletic ability paralympians have and and like now you you go to the london marathon and the streets are packed for the wheelchair race they want to see dave come through there they know who marcel hug is that he's chasing him down they know who daniel Romanchuk is the new kid on the block in the u.s who is He's not. If he's not it already, he's going to be the best wheelchair racer of all time. The kid's phenomenal. But these guys, you go to the London Marathon, they know who he is, and they're packing the streets, five people deep, to see the wheelchair pack go through. And we're coming through a half an hour, forty-five minutes before the the runners are coming through there. And so they're they're putting in the time and the effort to come see us race. That gives us value, real value. That is just goes so far into pushing, pushing the movement forwards, pushing uh, wheelchair racing forwards, and, and pushing forwards just the, the standing of people with disabilities in the community.
0: But part of that also was, was the buildup as well, right? So Channel 4, which covered the Paralympics in London, one, they covered it from 8 o'clock in the morning until 10 o'clock at night. It yeah. was nonstop Paralympics to the point where they had, they would wrap up the night with a comic who was off color, you know? And, and it's like, oh, yeah, can laugh at this. Like I mean, I grew up like watching MASH, right? And it's like, if you can laugh at a, at a really awful situation, then it's okay. You know, is and okay. It's, like, yep. Yep. it's like, it's our legitimacy, but they also spent four years beforehand with programming to, to educate the public so that when David Weir was, was going out into lane two at 400 meters at the bell, they knew what was going on and they saw they were prepared for that entertainment. How does that put a responsibility on the rest of the world to continue the movement both in the movement but also in everyday life too?
1: Yeah, I mean, in terms of the Paralympic movement, it kind of sets the bar, and you see, you see companies like NBC sort of feeling the pressure and and stepping up their coverage of the games and how they're doing coverage and and um, how like the level of of uh, education that it that it takes um, to create the product that that London created and that Channel Four over there created, um, but then it, it really. It sets the bar just societally because it shows that this population exists in, in our world. It put this population at the forefront. Like it's it's kind of weird for me. I'm, I just turned 37 last month and uh, I live in San Diego now. And this is the first city that I've ever lived in where I've really felt disabled like I felt the restraints of being uh in a wheelchair I you know when 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 I was growing up as a kid you're a kid you're sort of in your little kid bubble um and then I went to school at the University of Illinois which is in Champaign which is one of the most accessible places in the country like they invented accessibility they invented the laws for accessibility and then I went and lived in Australia for a little bit which their society is just leaps and bounds ahead of us in the United States and how they see people with disabilities. They see you as a person first. And then they're like, oh yeah, you're in a chair, whatever. We'll deal with that, no problem. But they see you as a person first. Whereas, you know, in the US, I, uh, societally we're not there yet. And then I'm, I'm finally in a city that where it's like, I have to move in a couple of months and there are a lot of cool little neighborhoods in San Diego, and I I look I'm looking for homes in them. And I'm like, well, I can't really afford to live there because that house needs these renovations to make it accessible, or this little bungalow is super cool in a super cool part of town, but that bathroom's so small I'd never be able to close the bathroom door while I was in there. And like, you just i I it's for the first time I'm feeling the limitations on on what it's like to live in the greater society in a wheelchair and like what that means just in terms of where I can live and and that's it's just a side effect of the fact that when still as a society when we're developing things and building things and yes we have the ADA law but nobody actually thinks about functionally what it means to have to navigate spaces they just think okay cool this hallway is 36 inches wide I meet the code or whatever. The doorway is 36 inches wide. I meet the code, big deal. Let's do it. They don't think about functionally what does it mean to use a door, um, you know? Like that's that one of the things that I really got into over the past six, seven years is the idea of universal design. Um, the idea of, of spaces and, and um, equipment and stuff being built for everybody. And, and one of the, one of the, the greatest examples of, the uni- of universal design is an automatic door, like those automatic sliding doors. They, you think they, they put them in because it, it's energy efficient or whatever for a business that keeps the door closed when it's not being used, but it helps everybody from people with physical disabilities be able to get in without struggling with a heavy door or a door that you have to pull one way or another. It helps uh, parents with young ch- children who might be pulling a toddler along next to them or pushing a a stroller. It helps people with shopping carts. Like it helps the elderly. It, you don't think of the sliding door as being that amazing of a thing for everyone that has to use it. Yet that's what, it it makes life easier for everyone. And and that's really one of the ideas that, that I've been getting into. Like there's a way to design spaces and products so that they are beneficial for for, for everyone, for everyone that picks it up to
0: use it. It takes a little bit more thought to be yes. able to approach it from a universal design, but, but it does make sense. I mean, it's not like, oh, we'll just tack a ramp on here. Right. And, and I would imagine being a restaurant owner now, I am guessing that you are probably one of the few restaurants that has an accessible bathroom that doesn't have chairs stacked in the accessible bathroom
1: yeah we have we don't have chairs stacked in there i'm getting on my guys every day because it's a it's a shared bathroom um and and there's a walkway uh between the back door of our restaurant and and the bathroom and i get on our our cooks all the time like you have to keep this walkway clear Like you can't fill it halfway. You can't fill it a quarter way. It has to be a hundred percent clear so people can get through and get to the bathroom. Um, And it's just, yeah, it's one of those things. And, and really like as a business owner, now you start to realize how valuable universal design is as well, because it opens up your customer base. Like if you're selling a product, you want to make it that product as easy to use and as easy to get as possible. And that's what universal design does.
0: Do you now, are you getting, getting involved in like the Rotary or some of these other organizations where you're meeting with some other business owners because one, you're telling your guys, you're telling your chef, but yeah. then are, are you working with other business owners to say, hey, look, this is, this is something you, can, you should consider. I, I feel bad that I'm not yet. And I need to be.
1: Um, I, I really it is it has been when I moved to San Diego It was my goal to become more involved in the community. And then coming off of the year we just had uh, sort of set me back a little bit. And and now I'm, I'm really trying to juggle my time between the restaurant and just making the, the team for Tokyo. But that you are 100 percent on point like that is exactly what i need to be doing and should be doing and i have no excuse not to do that um come you know tokyo ending i i, I need to become part of the community and make sure that you know we can keep pushing these changes forwards in in small ways
0: well it is and you're in a, you're in a unique position right having been successful as an athlete but also being a business owner. Which yeah. which you jump the line in a lot of ways being a business owner, right? You're not you're not going to an office applying for a job and right. wondering what's the person on the other side of the desk thinking about me? Because as a business owner, you go, Well, I don't really care. You know, I don't I don't have to worry about it. It's not my <laughs> yep. problem. Yeah. But that's, you know, for, for those of us, I mean, you're talking about like social change and how sport can be a platform for social change it comes with a responsibility as yeah. well. And, and so I think you do have your hands entirely too full at the moment, but, but it'll be interesting. I will be interested to see what you choose to do because, because it is, you know, it's sort of like there's this par- portion of your life where you're an athlete. Yeah. And then there's the rest of your life. And then there are the rest of the people as, I mean, like a billion people in the world, and how do you take that next step? What do you envision your voice being when you finish after Tokyo?
1: Uh, I I really hope I can I can continue doing what we're talking about. I really like uh, we 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 briefly talked about it earlier, but it is sad how few gainfully employed people with disabilities there are. And and as, you know, I feel like that's, you know, sports are one thing. Sports, like you need the opportunity, but you need the skill and the talent and, and sports are not fair. You, you need some genetic help to be able to, to compete at a high level. Um, but business is just about problem solving. And we could all solve problems and think and create And and I really want to, I would, I would like to be able to use my platform and and sort of whatever influence I may have or develop to help other people in communities like like those with disabilities learn how to create and 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 learn how to navigate a world and convince an able-bodied population that hey man I could. I could do this just as well as you. It might look a little different, but I could do it just as well as you. I can, I want, I want little kids to, to know that they could go out and, you know, dream about becoming rich, dream about making, having a great job or starting your own company or being an entrepreneur or whatever the case may be. Just, just because you have a disability shouldn't stop you from being able to do that yet. You know, too, too often that is the case now, but I, you know, that's, that's what, we're pushing for is that change.
0: Well, I think it sounds great. And one of the, it's an interesting step too, right? As you leave the Paralympics, which is a world, which is the, you know, the adaptive version, the disabled version of the Olympics to going into the rest of the world. And not that you haven't been in the rest of the world, you know, but, right. but it's back and forth, right? And in right. some ways you're right. defined in this, in this closed society and then you move out and then it's a matter of defining yourself on the grander scale. So that to me is yeah. going to be, it's going to be really interesting to see what you do next. And that's um, the next challenge. It is. And, but you're also, you're a challenge guy, right? I mean, it's one of those <laughs> things. That right. It's like, okay, I'd be bored if I didn't have a challenge. What am I going to do for the rest of my life? You're 37 years old. Hopefully you've got a few more years left in you. Ooh, hopefully <laughs> not what? <laughs> exactly uh, well josh thanks so much for joining us thank you for taking the time out of your work day to join us good luck in switzerland i look forward good to day. seeing you in minneapolis i will be yeah, there awesome. following it so please help me to to say you know josh is the first guy across the finish line that's i'd look uh-huh. forward to that oh god chris i'll do my best <laughs> Yeah, but thanks a lot. Thanks for thanks for joining us. And thanks for everything that you're doing, you know, in our world.
1: Thank you, Chris. It's been great chatting with you.
0: Yeah, it's been wonderful. Look forward to seeing you soon. Thank you to all of you for joining us. I hope that you've enjoyed what you've been able to see. If you haven't been able to see the full interview, it will be on the One One Revolution page on Facebook. We will edit this and put it into a regular podcast, which you can find on a regular, on the usual suspects. You can find it on YouTube, on Apple, on Spotify, all those places. If you like what we're doing, the greatest gift that you can give us is to tell your friends. Tell your friends that you enjoy what you're doing. Follow us, like us. That's how we continue to move forward. Subscribe subscribe to the podcast. And we will look forward to seeing you next week with another great guest. Josh, thanks a ton. Talk to you soon. Thanks, Chris. Take care.